You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Uh, it's, whoa, it's great to be here. Uh, I, I was here when you were in the basement. So like that old parent, I'm saying, wow, haven't you grown? <laughs> so really good to be with you. Uh, when Pete asked me if I'd come to preach here this morning, uh, I, I felt, yeah, any time, Pete, privilege. But also, my, uh, we're going to see you too this afternoon at Twickenham. So when, okay, great. Uh, uh, so when, um, when Pete asked me, I thought, it's definitely God. So I said to my elders, I said, I'm really sorry, but the Lord has called me an important mission. Uh, I have to preach at this great church in London. And by the way, I'll be uh, away in the afternoon as well. So it's brilliant to be with you. Um, uh, as I said, uh, as Pete said, we've been uh, friends with Pete and Nicky for 25 years. Uh, he was only five at the time. Uh, I, I wasn't. Uh, right, okay, uh, we've got a Bible. You can dig into John chapter 4. It's a long chapter. Uh, I love it when Jesus encounters people in the Bible. I love it when he uh, bumps into people. He meets men and women, rich, poor, religious, foreigners, adulterers, powerful. He meets them, but the same result is everybody's life is changed when Jesus meets them. You know, and I think the word from Tiffany was, let's expect more. Jesus is still here by his Spirit. Jesus is still here to change your life. And we're going to look at a story that might be familiar to some of you. If you're new to church, you might not know the story, but some of you might know the story. We're going to look at a story of the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well. It, it kicks off um, before in John uh, chapter 3 with Jesus meeting a, a guy called Nicodemus who's a rich insider of the ruling elite. And I don't think the, the contrast could be any starker because what we're going to look at this week is a social outsider. Uh, we're going to look at a, a Samaritan woman. And so uh, let's, let's go to work. Uh, I'm going to read bits and then comment, and uh, hopefully will not be too long. Okay, John chapter 4, verse 4. When Jesus left Judea, he went again to Galilee. He traveled through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the land that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down on the well. It was about midday. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And just like noble, food's important to the disciples of Jesus. But anyway, they'd gone into town to buy food. How is it, she said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for, uh, for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not use dishes. Samaritans have used. It's really interesting that, that, that here we find Jesus uh, uh, meeting someone of a questionable reputation. I don't think she's actually as bad as quite some of you who know the story might make out. But here's uh, a woman of pre- potentially questionable reputation, and she's coming to a world at midday. Uh, there's a great book which I should have brought to, to just my source called Ken Bailey, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It gives you such great background. This guy, Ken Bailey, lived in the Middle East and understands the kind of culture uh, around that, and lots of his insights are from there, so I just need to be honest with that. And he said that in Middle Eastern culture, that, that women wouldn't go to the well in the middle of the day. They would go in the morning when it was cool, or in the evening it was cool, and they'd always go in a group, because the, uh, the pots that they had to carry, they'd use a, a leather bucket, pull the water out, put it into these pots, and then carry uh, the buckets on their heads. And so women would go to the well in groups morning and evening, but here comes a woman on her own uh, going... Uh, to the well alone. And basically, social convention says only a, a social outcast 
or, or a bad woman, in inverted commas, would blatantly approach the well at midday. It just wasn't done. We probably think we don't get that, but that's, that's a culture. You need to understand that. And as she approaches the well, she sees a man. He's clearly a Jewish traveler. And he sat on the capstone of the well, the, the actual stone that covered to stop the dust getting in. And what would happen is, on seeing her, custom would have dictated that, that Jesus would have moved away from the well to let her go to the well, because obviously in, in this culture, you weren't to be seen uh, one-to-one, man-to-woman, who weren't married. You weren't to see that. It was coach, culturally unacceptable. Uh, and he was supposed to move away. The fact that he doesn't move away and Jesus stays sitting on the well, maybe she thought, oh, maybe he wants more than water, if you get what I mean. Maybe he wants more than water. And the fact that she approaches suggests that she is a woman of little reputation. So we've got immediately this tension of Jew and Gentile. We've got this tension of man and woman. We've got this tension of different groups. And actually, Jesus breaks that down straight away. He breaks it, and breaks it down and says, can I have a drink of water? Can have a drink of water. She is shocked because she thinks Jesus is going to be a racist and he's going to be a sexist, but he's neither of those. If you've heard that Jesus is a racist or a sexist, he's neither of those. No, he breaks through the barrier and says, I would like a drink from you. Even before he uh, speaks a word to her about God, he's broken down the barriers with her. Jesus' message of good news often starts a long time before he speaks. A long time before he speaks. Ken Bailey talks about Jesus and women, because often Jesus and churches get a bad rap about how they treat women. But Jesus, Ken Bailey says this, Jesus not only talked to women, he taught them. Women weren't taught in those days. The men were taught by the men and the women did the food keeping. Well, but Jesus taught them. He invited them into his traveling band of disciples. Women financed his mission and witnessed his resurrection. The radical nature of the changes in attitudes towards women that Jesus introduced are beyond description. Jesus is a barrier breaker. He's a barrier breaker. He doesn't stand with social conventions if those social conventions are going to get out of the way of him telling truth. And so he ignores the, the kind of man and woman convention. And he says, give me a drink. He also ignores the religious conventions. Religion divides. Religion divides. People think religion's a bad thing because it divides people. And actually, in this situation, we've got just, uh, Jews and Samaritans who were divided. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans were kind of like this mixed race group of people who lived in Samaria. That's kind of now the West Bank, as it were, in, pa- uh, in Palestine. And they were a mixed bag of, of kind of Jews or, or old people from Israel, uh, older folks from Israel and, and people from Assyria. And they'd mixed together and they got this mixed religion. And what happened is it created, instead of everybody worshiping in Jerusalem, they created this situation where the Jews would worship in Jerusalem at the temple and the Samaritans would worship on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And in fact, this got so bad that the Jews pulled down the temple on Mount Gerizim in 150 years earlier. So what happened is Samaritans respond by scattering dead bo- uh, dead bones of dead people in the, in the temple courtyard. So we've got, this is, 
this is Northern Ireland, isn't it? This is, this is Protestants against Catholics in Northern Ireland. This is, this is kind of Shears and Sonnies. This is kind of tension, of, of religious tension that divides. But Jesus cut straight through. He cut straight through. Actually, she says, how come is it you asked me to, uh, to for a drink because Jews don't associate with Samaritans? And then John puts a little note and he says, they wouldn't even use the same cup. They wouldn't even use the same cup. They would say, this is the cup I'm using, but I'm not going to share it with you. Because if you drink out the same cup as me, you're going to be defiled. But Jesus says, he hasn't got a cup, he hasn't got a bucket, he hasn't got anything. He says, I want to drink with you. He breaks straight through. It's so interesting in church, we can feel that, that if we get involved in touching this part of society, we get involved in touching this part of society, we get in touching this part of society, we're going to become unclean. That's what the Jews thought. If I touch a cup that a Samaritan person's had, I'm going to become unclean. And so what they do is the Jews would kind of, as it were, bunker themselves down and keep away. We don't get associated with Samaritans. We don't drink from the same cups. But, and church can be like that. You can think, well, the world out there is so bad. The world out there is so messed up. I need to keep away. Because if that touches me, I'm going to be bad. I remember my, my mom, good Christian lady, she, if you uh, mentioned alcohol, I mean, whatever your views on drinking alcohol, that's your business. But, but she'd say, like, oh, you mustn't go to the pub. Oh, no, no, you mustn't go to the pub. Because the danger was that, you obviously, you'd become an alcoholic if you came, went to the pub. You know, you'd become, like, defiled by this kind of drinking culture. And you think, whoa, hang on, I better not go there. And Jesus, but Jesus didn't think, oh, I'm staying away from where, from where the world's bad. He actually reached out and touched. He reached out and touched. He, his holiness and purity was con- contagious. Redeemer, your holiness and purity, your goodness is contagious. Don't feel like, oh, if, I get, if this touches my life or that touches my life from the world out there that I'm going to be messed up. No, you are out there to touch, the, touch people with your goodness. Thank you. You're out there to touch people with your goodness and change them. Your purity, your goodness that God has given you is contagious. It's not the evil in the world that's contagious. Your purity is contagious. Do you believe that? Your purity is contagious. Jesus says, I'm going to reach out and touch. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't come. He's the creator of the cosmos, the ruler of everything. But he comes tired. It says tired from the journey and thirsty, sitting down on a well. And he deliberately asks the woman for help. I don't know how you go about things, but actually normally we like to help from a position of superiority. We like to think, I'm all together, I've sorted, and I'm going to help you, poor person. We like to help from the position of, of moral superiority. We like the, the, the receiver almost to feel humiliated. I mean, you could have said that a lot of the missionaries that, uh, uh, as it were, went from this nation, not only went with the gospel, but went with the superior, superior, super, superiority complex. They thought, I, I'm the one who's... Uh, I'm the one who's got something to give and you're the ones in need. Jesus didn't do that. He said, I'm the one in need. I need a drink. I need a drink. You can't, you, you've got to get your head around that. That actually if you want to be the bright one, the clever one, the smart one. I don't know if you ever talk to, if, you, if you're not a Christian and people talk to you about Jesus and they're trying to prove a point to you. Or maybe you're a Christian and you talk to your friends at work about Jesus and you're trying to prove a point. It almost feels like you want to set yourself up as morally superior and you want to kind of beat this person in the argument. 
It never works. It never works. If you want to demonstrate your knowledge, win arguments, point the finger, make judgment, it never works. Here's Jesus saying, I'm the one in need. There is a right there, there's a theology of mission right there. Jesus comes to us as a helpless babe, doesn't he? Jesus comes to us as a poor carpenter. Jesus comes to us as a weary traveler without a bucket. He could have said, water, up. Couldn't he? But he says, I'm tired and needy, I need a drink. Guys, we need to understand the way we come to people. We need to break down barriers. We need to touch society. We need to be vulnerable, not superior. Increasingly, the church, as it finds itself on the margin, has got to learn not to be superior, not to learn to be scared. We've got to be humble and contagious with our goodness. Say amen for me. Okay, right, we move on. So then the conversation starts. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's speaking to me, uh, speaking to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said, you don't even have a bucket and the water is deep. So where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock? Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a spring of water, spring up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I don't get thirsty and come here to drink. The woman's definitely intrigued. And he says, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God... And the one who's speaking to you, he'd give you living water. She's probably thinking, the gift of God, the one who's speaking, and living water. They must be three different things. The gift of God, yeah, that'd be high. I'd like this water. And the one who's speaking. But actually, the truth is, they're all the same thing. They're all Jesus. He is the gift of God. He's the one who gives living water, and he was the one who was speaking to her. And sometimes, that, that sense of, it's all about Jesus, we need to understand that. We need to understand it's about Jesus. She, but she doesn't pick it up. She sort of bypasses that question about who is Jesus. But actually, if you're not a Christian here this morning, or if you are a Christian, what you think about Jesus is the fundamental question. It's not about, do you know the gift of God? Do you know this? It's about, do you know Jesus? She bypasses the identity of Jesus because she doesn't quite get it. What she's after is water. Thank you for putting the aircon on. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, man, water. I don't know. I've never been in a culture where water is short. I, I live in the UK, and water is abundant, often too abundant. You know, that you do, we're living this kind of tap-turning culture, don't we, where water is just available. But if you lived in a Middle Eastern culture, if you lived in a semi-arid or desert culture, that sense of water is quite alluring. If I say, I will give you water, you wouldn't go, whoa. But actually, in a desert culture, this kind of, I want water is amazing. I'm interested. Give me this water. This, this, she didn't understand. They, they understood the life-sustaining nature of water. I think we can be complacent about water. But they weren't complacent. Middle Eastern women were not complacent about water. Middle Eastern cultures were not complacent about water. They thought, if I don't have water, I'm busted. I'm going to die. You know, I don't know if you ever watch Bear Grylls. Hello? Yeah, thank you. 
If you watch Bear Grylls and he does this thing where he's out in the, uh, he's out in the desert, you know, and he goes for a few days without water, he's drinking all sorts of stuff, isn't he, by the end? You know, he's drinking kind of stuff out of plants and then blood from animals and then his own urine, you know, and it's like, oh, man. But, you know, at that point, you understand the deep significance of water. I think we'd be like that with Jesus. We live in this kind of sort of Christian culture. I know it's kind of changing a bit and it doesn't feel as Christian as it was when I was a kid. But the reality is we can have this idea about Jesus. Well, yeah, just, yeah, he's always on tap, isn't he? Come Sunday, there he is. We need to understand that this, this Jesus is life-sustaining. Uh, you don't have it, you end up drinking all sorts of stuff. It says in, uh, you know, there's a, Jesus is offering this spring of war inside her that quenches her thirst And she is desperate for it. She says, I want this water. I want this water. Everybody has a thirsty soul. Now, you might not be thirsty for water, but you are thirsty for something. You have got a thirsty soul. Deep within humanity is an unquenchable dissatisfaction and content. You are thirsty. We're constantly plunging this leather bucket of our life into all sorts of things to quench our thirst. You might think, I'm going to drink deeply on career. I'm going to drink deeply on making money. I'm going to drink, drink deeply on having sex. I'm going to drink deeply on having, being in love and having a great romantic partner. I'm going to drink deeply on popularity or comfort or even neat family life. I'm going to drink deeply on those. But the bottom line is you find yourself thirsty again. Is that true? You find yourself thirsty again. And there's something in you like this woman. You're not Jesus in this story. You're the woman. Even if you think you've got a good reputation. You're the woman in this story and you have a soul thirst. It says in Jeremiah, 600 years before this event, Jeremiah says, be appalled and horrified heavens. Be shocked and utterly appalled. The Lord declares the people have committed a double evil. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug wells for themselves that cannot hold water. God's people. God's people. Abandoned the living water and dug wells for themselves that hold no water. We do it all the time. Jesus is saying, I can give you this water. But she doesn't hear it. She doesn't hear what he's saying. Tim Keller was always good to quote in churches like this called Redeemer because he leads a church in, in New York called Redeemer. Tim Keller, if you quote Redeemer, uh, if you quote Tim Keller in my church, it's like, oh, he's okay then, fine. This is what he says. This is really profound. Now listen, I think that most of us are unable to recognize our soul thirst for what it is. As long as you think there's a pretty good chance that it'll achieve some of your dreams, as long as you think you've got a shot at success, listen to this, you experience your inner emptiness as drive. I've got to have it. Drive. I've got to have it. Your anxiety as hope. And so, you can remain almost completely oblivious to the deep, to deep, uh, the deep soul thirst, what, how deep your soul thirst actually is. Most of us tell ourselves we're unfulfilled because we haven't achieved our goals. So we live almost all our lives admitting without admitting the depths of our soul first. Uh, there's, um, I, I know you do the Alpha Course here. One of the guys who, who was uh, a speaker on the Alpha Course called Charlie Mackesy. He's uh, an artist. And he had a friend who worked in the city, uh, a, a businessman friend who worked in the city. 
And his friend had, had progressed and progressed and progressed in business. And then uh, he's sitting down with Charlie, who's an artist, so who's a boho, made no money. But his friend had made lots of money. And, and, he's, and he's, he's feeling, his friend's feeling down. And Charlie says, what's the problem? He said, I wish somebody had told me that when you get to the top of the ladder, there's nothing there. You get to the top of the ladder, there's nothing there. Now, most of us never get to the top of the ladder. I could think, if I had a bigger church, if I had this, if I had this, if I had this, you could put your thing in, that your temptation in your world is, then, then I'll be fulfilled and satisfied. You get to the top of the ladder, there's nothing there. That's why actors and rock stars kill themselves. Because they get the tragedy of getting to the top of the ladder and finding there's nothing there. Most of us don't. I could have chosen anybody, but I thought I'd choose somebody from kind of my youth. Here's an actress from my youth called Sophie Loren. She said this, In my life, there's an emptiness that's impossible to fill. I could have chosen a hundred A thousand people. I could have chosen Kurt Cobain. I could have chosen George Michael. I could have chosen anyone. The bottom line is we are all thirsty. We are all thirsty. Don't say, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm not thirsty. You don't drink water once and that's done, is it? I think you need regular hydration. Jesus is determined to break through this woman's inability to hear, you're thirsty, and I'm the one who's going to give you something to drink. She can't hear it, so she, he asks a question. Let's read on. He says, Jesus asked this simple question, go call your husband, he told her, and bring him back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said you don't have a husband. Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you said is true. I don't think Jesus is trying to just point out her complex sexual history. And I think, let me just defend this woman. In that culture, women didn't just bounce from man to man. What happened in that culture, men said to the women, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. Maybe she's married to the first guy and he just says, you're getting old now, I'm done with you. I'm trading you in. I divorced you. Maybe she found another guy. She thinks this is the one. Same pattern. She's abandoned. By the time she's with the third or fourth guy, she's already cultivating a relationship with number five just in case number four dumps her. She's been searching for something. She's been searching. I don't think she's just been searching for sexual fulfillment. I think she's been searching for something to fill her soul first. She's looking for something. Maybe she's looking for a man who's good and faithful and is going to stick with her. Maybe a guy who's going to love her. Maybe a guy who's going to be for her. Maybe a guy who's going to not abuse her. We don't know her situation. I don't think she's just some immoral woman. I think she's a victim of looking for, looking for her soul first to be quenched somewhere else. What question should I ask you about your soul first? Probably, if I said, go and call your husband, you'd say, well, uh, I'm okay. I've just got one. <laughs> Rich, go, <laughs> Kezi, go call your husband. It's okay, I've just got one. That doesn't, but actually, what question would you not want Jesus to ask you? How about, how's your bank balance to the compulsive gambler? How about, how's your family to the 70-hour-a-week business executive? How about, how's your internet search history to the porn addict? 
How's about how big is your church to the insecure pastor? You know, what question would, would reveal where your thirst is? Because Jesus goes straight to that question. I know that still happens today. I know that you can have what's called, the Bible calls a word of knowledge. You can have this insight and you don't have to bring it in a white suit on God TV. That's okay if that's your style. Actually, you can just ask somebody, so how's it going with X? And it all comes tumbling out. It all comes tumbling out. I haven't got a husband and the one I'm with is my husband and you should know my... Guys, you don't know. The power of that question that you might, somebody might just, you might get prompted with, or somebody might ask you to reveal the soul thirst. People out there are thirsty. A simple question can suddenly have them gasping for water. Jesus replied, Ah, sir, I see you are a prophet. And then she seems to change the subject. She said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you say that Jews, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is Jerusalem. I used to think that she's changing the subject. Oh, you've put your finger on my really painful thing I don't want anyone to know. Let's have a theological discussion. Let's have a discussion about should we worship here or should we there? Should we be Pentecostal? Should we speak in tongues? Should we break bread at the beginning? And, you know, let's have a theological discussion. And I used to think she was just throwing up a red herring. Ken Bailey in his book really helped me here. He said, no, no, she understood what's going on. I see you are a prophet. You've exposed my sin. How am I going to deal with it? How am I going to deal with it? Where should I go? I need a priest and a temple and a sacrifice to sort out my sin. I thought, Ken Bailey, you're a genius. He had to live in the Middle East for 25 years to get that insight, so maybe I wasn't going to pay the price for that one. But it's interesting. So he's saying you need a true priest and a true temple and a true sacrifice. And Jesus understands what she's saying. He says, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you worship the Father, neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. What? Am I supposed to go to that church? Am I supposed to go to this church? Am I supposed to go to Gezerim? Am I supposed to go? Where am I going to go to find, find forgiveness? He says, you don't need to go to those places. Hang on, both the Jews and the Gentiles and the Samaritans are completely ticked off. What does he say? He says, the time is coming when you're going to need neither priest nor temple or sacrifice because who's here? Say the Sunday school answer. Jesus is here. He is who? The true priest. He's the true sacrifice. He's the true presence of God. It's you that I... He's determined to bring her back to the critical question. It's about me. Guys, we can so often lose it in stupid debates. I remember one time I went to preach at a church. I tend not to get invited back, so Pete, thanks for the second invite. I I tend not to get invited back. And this guy in a Baptist church introduced me and says, we brought the opposition this morning. I'm almost going to say, no, no. I said, no, no, I'm not the opposition. We're on the same team. Yeah, the opposition is broken families. The opposition is greed. The opposition is drunkenness. The opposition is addiction. The opposition is sin. We're on the same team. Do we worship in this church or this church? Is it this or that? Come on, guys. It's about Jesus, the true priest, the true sacrifice, the true presence of God. Jesus is here. He's dying on the cross. He's thinking of that moment, perhaps. What does he say in the darkness? What does he say in the darkness? I thirst. I thirst. Why does he thirst? 
Okay, because it's a hot day and he's been crucified. Yes. Crucifixion dried out your mouth and ruptured your heart and pulled your ligaments out of joint. But he's saying, I thirst because he's standing where we all stand and where we all should stand. He's, pr- he's on the cross bearing our soul thirst, our emptiness. And he's saying, I'm thirsty. They said he's calling for Elijah. Yeah, he's, he's calling for God, but he's saying, I'm thirsty. He drank the cup of suffering. He drank down the emptiness of her life, of man to man. He drank the cup of your emptiness of your life, of working harder in your office to get fulfilled, to get a nice house. He drank down that rejection of God. Drank down your sin. So that he could offer an overflowing fountain of water. He's offering that. We had it. I love that verse from Romans. God has, say it, poured. Say poured. Poured. He's poured out. You probably say it nicer than me because I'm from the north. Poured out his love into our lives by the Holy Spirit. He's got this big fountain of love. This big overflowing artesian fountain of love. And he wants to pour it and pour it and pour it on us. We sing an old song. There's a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. You know, there's love that flows from the cross. There's love that flows to a world that's thirsty and doesn't even know it. Tim Keller, quote him again, and we are getting into land. Pete, I'll steal five minutes. Tim Keller put it like this. Everybody's got to live for something. But if it's not Jesus, it will fail you. For the woman that it was men. First, it will enslave you, whatever that it is. And you'll tell yourself you have to have it. Well, there's no tomorrow. That means if anything else threatens it, you become inordinately fearful. If anything else blocks it, you become inordinately angry. And if you fail to achieve it, you'll never forgive yourself. But if you do achieve it, even then it'll fail to deliver the fulfillment you expect. Jesus has come to do away with that soul thirst. He's come to do away with it. Let me give you another quote just to push this. She says, where am I supposed to worship? David Foster Wallace, who's uh, not a Christian, is an American novelist. He was addressing a, a bunch of students and, um, in their graduation, and he said this. This is their, what he said. So he's not a Christian. He's saying this. You can tell he's a dude, can't you? I don't think he's hurt his head, by the way. I think that's kind of what dudes wear. (laughs) He says this, everybody worships. Do you worship in this mountain or this mountain? Or Jesus? Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing God to worship, I I think it's small g God in the quote because he doesn't believe in God of Jesus. Choosing God to worship is everything else will eat you alive. If you worship money, and things as the real meaning of life, you never fully have enough. Worship your own body, your, your beauty, and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when the time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before the real time comes. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid of losing power, so you need more power to control those around you and numb your fear. Worship your intellect, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud in danger of being found out not knowing look the insidious thing about these forms of worship that there are unconscious default settings 
The woman is got to the woman at this point. She gets what, what Foster Wallace is saying. She gets that what Kel is saying. She gets that there's an emptiness inside her. Finishes here. Jesus says, but an, uh, the Jesus, it says, God is seeking worshippers. It says, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. She's on this journey of faith, but she's not quite there. She's not quite there because she thinks, tomorrow, I'll sort it out. Tomorrow, then's the answer going to come. She's thinking, how can my sins be forgiven now? How can my soul thirst be satisfied now? How can I have living water now? She says, when the Messiah comes, when the chosen one comes, then I can have it. Then I can have it. When Messiah comes, I'll have my soul thirst quenched. Perhaps another day but not today. I feel that if you're not a Christian this morning, or if you're feeling empty and you are a Christian, you can go away and say, I'll deal with it tomorrow. I'll drink deeply from Jesus tomorrow. I'll sort it out tomorrow. My busy schedule that's taking the place of Jesus, I'm sorting it out. My porn addiction that's taking the place of Jesus, I'll sort it out. My obsession with comfort, I'll sort it out tomorrow. My drivenness, my anxiety, my hope, I'll sort it tomorrow. I'll drink tomorrow. Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here. It's here. And then Jesus says, I am the one who's speaking to you. She suddenly gets it right in this moment. We're going to break bread in a moment. Right in this moment, I can feed on him. I can drink from him. I can have my soul thirst quenched. I can have my sins forgiven. I can feel free. I can feel different. That is the gospel, and that's what we come here to do. We come here to drink of him. When you get up Monday morning and read your Bible, you're coming to drink of him. You're coming to taste of him. You're coming to say, take that empty soul away and fill me afresh. I think that's why we need food and drink daily. Because it says daily, you are not self-sufficient. You need Jesus. That's why we say, Grace, oh, thank you for cooking this food, Nikki, the lovely pulled pork. Actually, that's nice. But actually what you're saying is everything comes from God. The things that fill me and satisfy me come ultimately from God. She runs into the village. and She says, there's a guy that's told me everything I've ever done. This is the outcast putting her head above the parapet and saying, come on to me. And they, they, you know, they, she, I don't know what the interaction was in the village, but there's something's gone on with this woman. that They all say, whoa, here's an empty woman. Here's a woman who's an outcast. And a woman doesn't want to be with people. And she gets filled by the love of God. And suddenly everybody in the village says, I want to come and have what you've got. I want, where did you drink? I want to drink from what you've drank. Guys, as you go out from here, You must believe. 
That when people see you, they think there's something filled about you in a thirsty land. There's something satisfied about you in a land that's empty. In a London that's worried and care and about fires. A, wonder, a London that's worried about terrorism. There's a fullness. There's a satisfaction about you because Jesus has drunk your soul thirst so you can overflow with his love. There's something about you that you should say, hey, what is it? I played golf. I must finish. I played golf with some guys uh, uh, this week. And he told me, what do you do? I said, what do you do? And afterwards, he had a beer with me and said, you know, there's just something about you that's really attractive. And I thought, you're not gay. It really wasn't that. You know, I'm not having a dig. It just, I thought he wasn't saying that. He just said, there's something about you. And I thought it, was, it certainly wasn't my golf. <laughs> there's something about you, Redeemer, that's incredibly attractive, that's overflowing in goodness. I'm done now. I love to think, we're going to break bread now, but uh, I love to think of this old woman. She used to be an outcast. And she's, she loves to sit around at the barbecue. Holy smoke barbecue, I'm sure it was. She loved to sit around at the barbecue and, and she said, and there'd be a little community of Jesus followers in that village who all got their soul thirst quenched and say, do you remember that time when that guy came, when Jesus came and quenched my thirst? And they'd say, woman, we're so thankful that you were in a mess, that you went at midday, that you, it was all wrong, that he broke the barriers. We're so thankful. Suddenly she'd found community. She'd tell the story of a soul-thirsty outcast who went to an empty well and returned full, having found the one whose unquenchable life fills and satisfied the soul. Let's come and taste and see and drink from him.